0: Welcome to episode 147 of Blockchain Insider. My name is Simon Taylor, and I'm joined by my co-host, Mr. Kai Sheffield, the head of crypto over at Visa. How are you doing, Kai?
1: Fantastic as always. It's been an amazing few weeks of crypto. Excited to, to dive in with some great guests today.
0: Oh my God, have we got some stories and we've got some great guests. In today's episode, we're going to be looking at some of the best stories of the past month, including Visa developing interoperability concepts for central bank digital currency and stable coins, NFT sales surging over to $10 billion in Q3 as the crypto asset frenzy hits new highs, and Bitcoin, not gold is the new inflation hedge according to JP Morgan analysts. To dig into this, I'm joined by some fantastic guests, starting off with Kinjal Shah, who's Senior Associate at Blockchain Capital. Welcome to the show, Kinjal. How are you doing?
2: Great. Thank you so much for having me.
0: No, thank you for being on the show. Big big fan of your work and excited to have you. And joining you is David Hoffman, who's co-owner at Bankless. How are you doing, David? Great to have you on.
3: Absolutely fantastic, Simon. Been listening to the show for a long time, so glad to finally be
0: here. Glad to have you on. Big fan of the Bankless podcast. I'm big fan of everything you guys do. And last, but by no means least, is the nerd's nerd himself, the one and only Lex Sokolin, who's head economist of decentralized protocols over at Consensus. How are you doing, Lex?
4: I'm doing great, Simon. I'm blushing if you can't tell uh, just from the audio, but I, I appreciate that.
0: Hey, it's it's uh, if you haven't checked out Lex's Substack, you absolutely should, folks. Uh, the FinTech Blueprint, so please do. We're kicking off with some pretty exciting news. So the first story um, was covered by The Block, but just about everywhere else, which was Visa developing an interoperability concept for central bank digital currency payments and stable coins. Visa's has taken a step towards achieving its vision for CBDCs, developing a concept that should shows how various uh, central bank digital currencies could interoperate with each other and stablecoins. And the concept is called a universal payments channel. It outlines how various blockchain networks can be interconnected to allow the transfer of different CBDCs. And it shows how Visa can help exchange some of those CBDCs built on different blockchain technologies in the future. UPC is a conceptual, with uh, underscored on conceptual, protocol that facilitates digital currency payments between different parties. I mean, Kai, I've got to come to you first on this one. Yeah, what was the motivation background to to why you guys did this?
1: Yeah, so first, we're really fortunate to to get to work with an amazing research team based in in Palo Alto, who they've been doing cutting edge blockchain research for several years now. So all credit, you know, goes out to them. And really, the, the way that we frame the problem in the first place is when people think about you know, digital currencies being used you know, in, in payments, in the payments ecosystem, what a lot of people don't realize is we're heading towards a world where there are multiple stable coins that then run on multiple different public blockchains. And at the same time, you have central banks looking to create their own CBDCs which will likely run on multiple different networks, you know, depending on who they decide to, to work with to build. And so it's really hard to expect you know, this to be functional if there are no bridges in no ways to have interoperability between them. And so we started thinking a lot about this question of you know, what are new technologies in new cryptographic primitives, you know, hash time lock contracts, and you know, what are these things that are emerging in the crypto ecosystem? That might be able to be applied to help solve some of these problems, like how one person can send USDC over the Ethereum blockchain, and another person could receive a CBDC over a permissioned version of, you know, Quorum, you know, in a country that that creates their own CBDC. And so, to be clear, this is really of the first step. It's we are learning to write smart contracts. You know, Visa's never written a smart contract before, but we recognize that you know the future of finance and payments, it's going to be built on many of these open networks, and we have to learn how to interact with them. We actually had a party you know, as we deployed the, the contract to, to the Ropstein testnet. Uh, and so we're trying to create these this core competency. And we're not saying this is the answer. We're trying to contribute to this body of research that we think it's important for the entire payments ecosystem. And so I think part of the point of this is really to get feedback. Uh, and I think one of my favorite tweets was, you know, someone tweeted, not terrible, and then some like very specific uh, ways that they would have done it differently. It's like, this is exactly what we need to be able to, to improve and, and figure out these problems. So I'd love to start with, with Lex and uh, kind of understanding different approaches to interoperability and scalability yeah, you know, how do you think about, you know, where we are today in terms of solving some of those challenges?
4: Awesome. Th- thank you for the prompt and I'm I'm really excited for this piece of news. You know, I think from the point of view of consensus, like consensus sits in between the institutional world and the web3 crypto native world. So, you know, we're we're engaged in a bunch of CBDC work largely on the protocol level, standing up the infrastructure for for the software. And then on the, on the Web3 side, we've got MetaMask with now something over 10 million you know, monthly average users. And it's, it's like f- fantastic. It's all uh, billionaire cartoon foxes trading you know structured derivatives in a, in a uh, time-traveling fashion, something like that. And so it's really cool to have that seed because you get to see the different worlds and, and sort of how they're co-evolving and how they plug in or don't plug in and so on. You know, and the truth of it is that the on-chain stuff is 10 times faster than the fintech stuff. And then the fintech stuff is 10 times faster than the traditional finance stuff. And it's all kind of moving in the same direction. And I think for for, for folks that are maybe skeptical or still kind of trying to grok the space, it's my, my journey, sort of my destination has been to think about... Um, Crypto and Web three as transitioning from being a story about a NASA class, like oh look here's here's new money and this money is cool, or here's an investment opportunity, or you know here's some lending you can do, and I think a lot of um, a lot of folks still think about it that way to being Web3 and being in an, a new internet with a new chassis that requires things like Visa being able to take in Federal Reserve coin or China's DCP coin, and then turning that into payment processing on traditional e-commerce sites, and all of that being interoperable with Web3 native functionality. And I think, you know, to just kind of, close out these points, which I apologize are a little bit of a word salad, but I saw somewhere recently the idea that, you know, every company is going to be a crypto company. And it's, it's embarrassing to say out loud because every company is a crypto company. And if it's not like, what are you doing? And all of the internet is going to be Web3 because, you know, who's checking MySpace these days? Not, not a lot of people or GeoCities. Although there's some pretty good gifts there that I think could make NFTs. So, you know, a ret- retro moment right now. Yeah, I'm
0: here for it. Uh, Kinjal, what are your perspectives on, on the work of Visa here? Is it, is it helping us into Web3? Is it is it meaning some things for consumers? What are your thoughts?
2: Excited to see Visa take steps towards writing their own smart contracts. I think it's setting a great example of how some of the larger institutions that are dipping their toes into the Web3 industry can move forward and really taking more of a, a learning mindset of how do we build with new technology? How do we embrace public blockchains? Yeah, I think it's it's an amazing new step. And as Lex mentioned, I really do believe every company is going to be a crypto company. And so sooner rather than later, um, I think that's yeah, that's kind of where we're headed.
1: And, and then you know, David, you know, I've, I wanted to come to you because I've I've learned a ton from Bankless just trying to understand the difference between you know, an optimistic rollup and a state channel. And so, you know, our research here was specifically around kind of one approach, one design to solve this. How do you contextualize, you know, the different efforts in the Ethereum ecosystem around scalability and, and interoperability?
3: Yeah, absolutely. A big question I think that is yet to be answered is there's so much effort going on to all these uh, CBDC uh, research endeavors. We we see the United States going on research endeavors. We see a lot of Europe going on research endeavors. We see China actually executing. But the, I think a broader question that I think a lot of people are forgetting to ask is that a lot of these efforts as to how to construct a system, a lot of that work has already been done and with regards to uh, building up a roll-up. Uh, and what a roll-up allows any operator of any like be a private currency or a, a central bank digital currency is that a, a roll-up is uh, a big amount of the lift that's already taken care of for them. And really they just need to take a, the existing technology, determine what amount of control do they want, and then get a developer to, to build that and then deploy that as a roll-up to Ethereum or in, in theory, really any, any uh, L1 uh, system. Uh, and, and these rollups allow for massive scalability that would be required for a central bank digital currency while still giving some state level actor or company the control and power that they want in order to uh, you know, maintain either like compliance or just being able to have inspection into the state of the currency. Uh, and so I, th- I think over time, we are going to see an increasingly large number of CBDCs turn towards rollups on Ethereum just because it's already integrated into the rest of the uh, already vi- very vibrant Ethereum economy and that scalability lift has already been taken care of by a lot of these teams.
0: I really love that idea um, of, of kind of adopting the technology rather than making your own version of it. And there's also their own there's already interoperability baked into the technology. It reminds me of uh, there's a story of a UK bank in the mid 90s who looked at the Internet and said, that's not secure enough. We should build our own Internet, which sounds laughable today, um, but actually it Central banks are falling for the same trap, which is, oh, we don't like that. We should build our own. Uh, and the reality is, you can. Should you be the builder of the technology, or should you be the people who set the rules about how your bit of the technology is used? And how do you gain confidence that I can use this roll-up technology to have my own walled garden, this pocket of light where the rules work as I see fit? And um, there's a an really interesting guy at the DTCC called Rob Polatnick. He described this idea of like Olympic rings of sets that sort of overlap, if you can imagine that in your head. So you'd have these different layer twos that sit above the layer one network and the Ethereum network and the EVM becomes this base layer like TCP IP, but for value. It, it allows you to move value around, but then you can build on top of that anything you want. You can build any intranet, you can build any um, corporate intranet um, where where you're much more in control. You can firewall it. All of these things have evolved on top of an open Protocol. And I think that's a, a helpful metaphor. Um, so, Kai, final thoughts on this before we move to the next story. What, what comes next? This is just the early stage of the research
1: of this particular solution. And since then, we've had all these amazing people from the open source public blockchain ecosystem reach out and say, no, let me show you a better way to do this, let me explain to you you know, this approach. And now we're taking these meetings and just learning and exploring. And to us, it's not about we have to build it, it's the industry has to solve these problems and how do we work together uh, to help make that happen. So super excited to see it's not CBDC or public blockchains, how do these technologies come together.
0: It probably is the ultimate DeFi mullet. And since we have Bankless, <laughs> the originator of the DeFi mullet uh, on the show, it feels fitting that we that we bring that up. So if you've not seen the DeFi mullet meme, I would recommend sticking that into Google if you're listening to this podcast. It was it was a work of art. Uh, all right. The next story comes from Cointelegraph um, and again was covered in many places. Almost 1.1 million people have apparently already signed up for a Coinbase NFT waitlist. Of course, we've seen FTX launch their own NFT capabilities. And NFT sales have surged to more than $10.7 billion in Q3 as the frenzy sets new heights. Of course, there's already been uh, a bunch of signups dubbed Coinbase NFT. Apparently, it will initially support um, Ethereum-based NFTs, the ERC-721s and 1115 token standards and is expected to expand to support other blockchains in the future. We've also seen um, in related stories, price gains during the COVID-19 pandemic are often cited as a big driver between this market growth. Um, But I'm interested in the panel's views here. Are we going to see this continued run in NFTs? Are we looking at a consumer bubble? Uh, Kinjal, what are your perspectives on what all of this stuff means for NFTs?
2: don't know where exactly we are in a market cycle that being said you know i think this year has been a bit of a wild ride with nfts that's an understatement i think with coinbase kind of coming forward with this platform to me you know it means that we're going to see some ensued market activity people are going to continue to buy nfts well into the new year partially because there's just so much ease and convenience of all the user base of coinbase being able to access an nft same thing with ftx i think there's just an element of convenience there of where you might hold your assets and then being able to go buy an NFT is just quite appealing. At the same time, I am seeing NFT fatigue, right? There are a lot of people in the market who are getting concerned about, you know, getting rug pulled, as they say, or just people kind of going out and flipping projects and really differentiating between long term value for communities versus something that's much more short lived. So I do think that we're going to see a little bit of a cool down at some point, just in terms of how these communities are forming so fast right now. It feels like every day there's dozens of NFT drops. But at the same time, I don't think that, you know, I don't think that this is a trend that's going away. I really do think that this is going to continue for the next foreseeable for the you know, foreseeable future and ultimately, I think, lead to a bigger boom of having traditional Web2 companies come into crypto. And, you know, I think that's what the long tail of this looks like is for the next two, three years, people are figuring out what their strategy looks like, how they can incorporate NFTs, if it makes sense to, and then we'll be implementing that, maybe not this quarter, but definitely over the next, you know, four to six, call it.
1: And then Lex, I'm, I'm curious how you think about, you know, balancing these different elements of the NFT ecosystem. It's like, you need creators, you need collectors, you need marketplaces, you need wallets, you need applications and use cases. And so to Kindles point, like people getting NFT fatigue, if there are a lot of NFTs and not enough collectors for them and not many marketplaces, where do you see you know, the biggest kind of need for the NFT ecosystem to, to grow? What has to exist? What has to get developed to now?
4: Sure. There's so much in that question uh, and I'm in danger of not answering the question you asked. So look, I'll, I'll share some frames, right? Like we know what digital assets are and they're the financial stuff. And then we've got digital objects and digital objects are just like things, but digital. And so it, to rephrase the question is like, when are people gonna stop buying all these things? Aren't they tired of all the things they're buying? And of course that's like a silly question. Not that we're silly for asking it because this is novel, but people never get tired of all the things. They will always buy more of the things. And then there's also this kind of surprise of like, oh, it's a bubble, it's a frenzy, it's a mania, and every other sort of hyperbolic clickbait article out there. The answer is people are fashion driven because we're we're social creatures right so we we reflect in our DNA, the desire to be tribal, the desire to compare status and so on. So you've got fashions. So things come in and out of fashion. And it's you, you can point to crypto punks, you can point to apes, you can point to the art, you can point to all these other different objects. And I think the idea of fashion coming in and out of season is really important. And as more consumer investors come into the space, rather than the fintech nerds or the DeFi nerds, you'll see people getting a much better sort of handle on how to do fashion in this space and what community means in a way that's a little bit, you know, less naive than than it is now. So I think for the longer term trend, I'm very bullish in terms of the infrastructure. I think the best framework out there or the first folks to to really articulate it, Outlier did a great job with their uh, metaverse stack. Right. So what do you need for the metaverse? well, you need a computational layer, you need a file storage layer, uh, you need some DeFi financial layers, you need marketplaces, and then you start needing things like where to render these, uh, these objects and you know social layers and so on that are all uh, articulated on top of Web3. So I think for people who are, who are kind of dedicating a decade to the space, it's gonna be very productive
0: and the medium to long term uh, is, is really interesting listening to all of the various perspectives. It's almost like we're aligned around, we may be in speculative mania right now, but if you can look past that, there's also something amazing happening. David, how do you reflect on that?
3: Yeah, I think the the Coinbase NFT story is, is still being appreciated for for what it really could be. And I think a really uh, important element that I don't think a lot of people are talking about is the uh, social media nature of, of the platform, the, the mock-up that they put on their on their announcement posts, it it had all of the same social media elements that we've seen previously followers following like a a name a a handle a bio so all everything you would see on your instagram page or your twitter page but now it's coinbase's nft page right so this is not just an nft platform this is a social media platform that's surrounding the nfts that you are able to buy on coinbase and so this is really like leaning into this very social nature of what nfts have become and in addition to that, this is, I think, going to be the first, like, major uh, custodial NFT platform, which I think is going is one of the reasons why, I mean, the NFTs have done phenomenal work with actually onboarding people into using this stuff, actually downloading MetaMask, actually appreciating uh, crypto for what it is and how it works. But I mean, it's, it's still hard. Uh, and so there's going to be a ton of demand for people to buy NFTs in their very preferred in a way that they actually prefer to have the custodial side of things. There's a lot of people out there in the world that just aren't going to care about certain ethos of the, the cryptocurrency world, the non-custodial nature. And they're just going to prefer other people to hold their own assets. People that use Robinhood come, come to mind as well. And this is also going to be a way where people can just swipe a credit card to buy an NFT, which is kind of how they're used to, to buying consumer goods. Uh, and so, like while NFTs have continued to like shatter people's brains about how much demand there actually is for these things, uh, as bigger and bigger companies come into this NFT space, we just saw uh, Viacom sign a deal with its NFT platform to list SpongeBob and South Park NFTs. A lot of those consumers are just going to want to prefer to buy them on Coinbase, where like the rest of their friends are. Uh, and so this, I think is going to be a huge, um, another adoption moment for the NFT industry, which is really, it's going to add fuel onto an already very hot fire.
0: I think that's such an important point. I mean, Kai, we often talk about like how many people just haven't experienced a, a MetaMask wallet, a rainbow.me or something, and just not done the non-custodial thing. But can you unpack custodial versus non-custodial for the, um, for the one one crowd that is why, why could that be so impactful if somebody like a Robinhood did it versus somebody like, um, you know, sort of trying to go direct and and custody it yourself.
1: Yeah, so I think today, one of the, the hurdles and the challenges is that, you know, to collect an NFT or to purchase an NFT, you have to have a wallet that can, you know, actually Uh, Connect to an NFT platform. And today, those tend to be non-custodial wallets like MetaMask, where you have to set up the seed words, you have to manage the key yourself. If you lose the seed words, you lose the key. There's no way to recover it. So you've lost all of your NFTs. So there is this barrier for some consumers. It's just they're not used to it. But what's fascinating is they're figuring it out. We're seeing NFTs are really driving, you know, people who weren't into Bitcoin, they weren't into DeFi, and now they're going down the rabbit hole of how to set up and, and manage a, a MetaMask or a Rainbow wallet. Um, and then if you compare it to like the early days of, of Bitcoin, you know, it was similar that you know most people, you know, the point of Bitcoin was having a non-custodial wallet. But then as you have these easy fiat on ramps like Coinbase you know the experience for most people coming into the space for the first time was to just buy you know with a debit card or your bank account and let coinbase manage the the key for you and so i think having that option of the very easy on ramp and then what i would expect is some people will then withdraw the same way that some people buy bitcoin on coinbase and then they learn to use a non-custodial wallet and they withdraw it you could buy an nft on coinbase learn to use it and then withdraw it you know to a non-custodial wallet and so they can kind of act as these complements instead of being necessarily opposed to each other. And I think one of my biggest takeaways on, on this entire story is crypto wallets are becoming the new super apps. How many other platforms do you know that have tens of millions of customers in a financial context that are rapidly you know, entering social media, that are you know entering music, entering art, entering culture? And so the same way that you know, you have you know, large social media platforms trying to figure out how to get into to fintech and how to get into payments. You know, now you have large crypto platforms figuring out how to get into social media, and so I think that's a fascinating implication of of where we're going.
4: Yeah, I th- I think I want to just do a little niggle there in the sense that I think it's actually uh, Web three that's the super app. Like the the point is that all the apps are in Web three, and the function is on and around the protocol. And the, the crypto wallets are the, the digital authority that we bring there, which is fantastic because it means the basically blowing up all the super apps, right? Because it's all open source and it's all free and that's, that's the future. But from a user experience, it absolutely feels like all the stuff that you would want is right there on the other side of the
0: wall. Yeah, the wallet becomes the gateway into it. But actually, what the wallet's doing is less app and more access, which is which is kind of powerful. It's um, going to be so compelling to watch. We didn't even mention MoonPay has raised 400 million at over four billion valuation. MoonPay is the provider of uh, you know kind of instant access to NFTs on OpenSea, sort of like uh, the PayPal to eBay equivalent. Uh, ramp, uh, on ramped one of the on ramp companies has has raised as well. Uh, we'll see a lot more, I think, in this like make. Making NFTs accessible space, but also in the wallet space, I'm sure there's a lot more to come. And that trade off of security versus usability is age old. Actually, there's a really good Bankless podcast with uh, Vitalik where you guys sort of talk through some of those trade offs. So, again, um, couldn't recommend that enough to listeners. But we do have to hear from our sponsors. So, we're going to take a quick break and we shall be back shortly. This episode is brought to you by Visa, one of the world's leaders in digital payments. Crypto has opened up a new world of possibility, and Visa is helping everyone take part. Visa enables commerce across their network and crypto networks through solutions like FinTech FastTrack, a quick and easy way for crypto innovators to issue payment credentials. Join us in this new money movement. Learn more at Visa.com forward slash crypto. Hey, folks, over here at 11FS, we're still working hard to build the next generation of financial services, and our team is growing quickly. So we're looking for a bunch of new 11s to join us. If you or someone you know is up for a new challenge and a bit of a fintech nerd like us, check out the roles in consulting across product, engineering, design, delivery, and strategy. You'll find all the details at 11fs.com forward slash careers.
1: So the next story comes from Fortune, where Bitcoin, not gold, is the new inflation hedge, says JP Morgan. So when it comes to hedges against inflation, Bitcoin is looking more and more like the new gold, according to a note JP Morgan shared with clients. And So Bitcoin has surpassed you know, $50,000, now $60,000. Uh, and according to JP Morgan's note, institutional investors appear to be returning to Bitcoin, seeing it as a better inflation hedge than gold. So maybe let, let's start with Kindral here. What's going on with Bitcoin? Why are people excited about Bitcoin again all of a sudden?
2: My personal view, at least, that Bitcoin kind of comes in and out of the spotlight, but it has probably the most one of the most passionate communities out there. And so the backstop is just incredible, right? People People that are holding Bitcoin and our you know, long-term believers do not really touch their Bitcoin. If you look at some of you know, what we call the hodl waves of just how people have, when people have purchased them and, and when coins have moved, you'll see that there's a very strong percentage of population that holds Bitcoin that does not move them. And so to me, it really just feels like the market's kind of doubling down. And then amidst this sort of backdrop of printing money that we're seeing in the United States, of inflation rising... Of consumer goods the index also rising we have all these sort of signs where earlier this year there you know we were basically saying that we were hearing at least that the inflation state was not necessarily going to be shifting now we're in a more of a transition phase where they're saying okay inflation is is coming it might be more than we anticipated so i think there's just this general sentiment that you know inflation is is here and bitcoin which has been claiming to be an inflation Maybe not even claiming, but say you know a lot of the thesis around Bitcoin has been around store of value and potential inflationary hedge is starting to become more and more of a reality, and it's backed by this community that um, that kind of is the backstop.
1: Lex, what are your thoughts on that in terms of situating the the macro environment uh, that we're in today and and what's driving interest for for Bitcoin this week?
4: I think there's two things to say. The first is the macro risk on risk off uh, dynamics, and then the second sort of the the secular shift to, to digital assets. And I, I'm guessing that the secular shift to digital assets is a is a narrative we're all familiar with, that, that we don't need to kind of <laughs> dredge up from wherever it's hiding. Um, but I think it's it's accurate and correct and true to say that, you know, Bitcoin is going to continue to become more and more valuable as uh, the developed world uh, deconstructs itself with purpose and, and uh, sort of destroys its own purchasing power. Um, but on on the first point, just like in the short term, it's it's the macro environment is totally risk on. I mean, th- there's just um, continued you know asset inflation, housing prices. There's um, wage inflation is starting to to kick in. Like it's not it, it's not obvious in the in the indicators that average everything out. But if you look in a little bit more detail, you start to see um, commodities. You start to see certain uh, certain farm goods you start to see housing in certain areas uh, creep up in value and then people are getting cash in their pockets and they're putting that cash into assets and so they're putting that cash into that housing or into the stock market or into all sorts of strange metals and so this just indicates a desire for risk-taking you know and why where's the desire from risk-taking coming from well we're so levered that we'll never pay off our debt, so might as well roll the die on the big payoff. Sort generationally, not like individually, like generationally, you know, it's like Earth's about to, to hit the sun and we're all in debt, right? So might as well make the metaverse. Uh, <laughs> I joke, but you know, so so this is, this is the risk-on environment and I think Bitcoin's a risk-on asset and uh, so is the rest of DeFi and Web3.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, uh, I heard somebody the other day say that um, your stocks are now your savings and crypto is now your stock picking in that um, in order to get a yield, people are chasing risk um, because interest rates have been so low. And it's the central banks that sort of created this environment with the money printing. Um, but also, uh, I saw just today that um, you know, the, the Bank of England is talking about raising interest rates. Uh, uh, we had Morgan Stanley last week asking um, the central banks to, quote, prick the bubble. Um, there's a lot of pressure to raise those rates sooner, but then also we've got the supply chain shock of uh, everything happening where container ships can't get into ports because post-pandemic there are no goods available um, and and yes, commodities as well. So is that transitory? Will it go away? And then how much uh, opportunity do the central banks really have because everybody is so levered um, without causing untold chaos if they raise interest rates too much? Do they, do they go too far the other way and, and cause chaos? So I don't know how much they can raise rates and how much they can really get rid of inflation so do we see a do we see a spiral there so there's the macro thing and then there's the around uh, the economy and then the that kind of broader point about digital assets
3: yeah i think you guys and lex in particular really hit the nail on the head here i i, I think the juxtaposition but behind the broken physical supply chains of the world and the booming nft markets is like a really interesting juxtaposition like maybe it's not so direct that just because people can't can't get their hands on physical goods therefore they're going to nfts but like it, the story is that we're moving into a digital world and everyone knows this um, but now that there's web 3 there's actually a literal metaverse that we can actually point towards like hey this is where people are go- are going by the way there's no gold in the metaverse like but there is bitcoin like bitcoin does exist in this digital world so it, it's really that that contrast that i think is particularly interesting and and uh just echoing exactly what lex said like as we print money we create inflation but we also incentivize risk and uh, and this is where we are seeing like, I, I think a lot of tech companies like Amazon, Apple really, really do well in the recovery uh, because they are companies with hot, strong cash flows and no debt. Debt is really, really risky right now. And and so people are looking to store their savings, store their in hedge inflation in these high growth tech companies. We're watching um, the, the stimmy checks go out and a bunch of millennials and Zoomers YOLO their stimmy checks into the meme stonks. Because they, they need to take the risk, right? A lot of people feel like, like if, they, if they don't take the risk, then they'll never be able to actually, uh, you know, see a life that their parents saw. Uh, and so like the, we're seeing um, really people take on a risk on environment. Uh, and really all the people who believe in gold they already own gold. They owned gold before COVID. Uh, and so when people are coming and asking them and themselves, all right, inflation's coming, like where do I where do I put my money to hedge against inflation? It's on the risk on assets, right? If you're not trying to double your money, triple your money, then you're actually falling behind because everyone else is literally trying to triple their money.
1: So basically I was just saying for, for Kindrel, if like I, I wanna bring one other angle into the story, in that, you know, in the past few weeks, past few months. There's been you know, a, a number of developments around the Lightning Network. You hear about El Salvador you know, using Lightning. You have Twitter you know, adding you know, Lightning uh, tips. So is do you think that any of that is feeding into the, the growth and, and excitement around Bitcoin? How much of it is some amount of increased utility with tipping? Or is it just all macro? And this is just an asset class and digital gold. Doesn't really matter whether people are tipping each other in or not.
2: I still, I think, would say that the primary driver today is the macro story. I think it's you know we're starting to see Bitcoin and Lightning Network getting more incorporated into either user user facing applications or populations where they might not have had access to things like Bitcoin previously, like things you know El Salvador, where I think it's extremely useful. Um, And so I think that definitely helps with adoption and kind of build this overall story. But I think macro is is still probably the most important. And just the one other point I was going to make was, you know, we're seeing a generational shift where trillions of dollars are kind of getting inherited by Gen Zers and we're starting to see Gen Z grow up and start working. And you know, I think web three is probably the most exciting place to be if you're if you're, you know, want to work in technology and in the internet. And I, I think that we're starting to see this story play out with not just the assets that people are holding, but the fact that a lot of Gen Zers, I think, want to build utility for Web3, right? They're building applications, they're building new startups, new you know, protocols, whether that's supporting Bitcoin or another chain. And I think that's really important is the next generation workforce, I think, is really excited about this technology.
0: Yeah, to close this one out, Kai, I think there's a couple of interesting points as well about the the changing institutional perspective on this. Um, like, if you are in asset management and uh, you see this asset class um, not having an allocation to it, seems seems wild at this point. And in the client appetite and the client demand from from those asset managers uh, that they're getting from everything from pension funds to wealth funds to their uh, high net worth uh, individuals is really significant. Um, and so, if your clients are asking for something, you've kind of got to give it to them. Um, and it, there was a really interesting tweet by Noel Aitchison, uh, who's at Galaxy Digital as a researcher, which is there's almost this narrative um, block at the moment of is uh, Bitcoin the inflation hedge? Or is it the result of the speculative bubble and all of the money printing? Or is it both? (laughs) And the, the really scary but exciting thing is nobody really knows. We could see horrible things happen to a generation of people who've been too risk on. Or we could see people build a new type of internet, a new type of utility, and solve some of the real problems. Because Chris Dixon's, it always starts out looking like a toy is ringing through my mind. NFTs do look a little bit like a toy. Angry Birds looked like a toy. But the iPhone was transformational for financial inclusion. It was transformational for finance. It was transformational for all kinds of industries. Um, and I think we, uh, my, the hopeful side of me, the optimist in me, sees, sees real opportunity to, to do a lot of that sort of stuff. All right, um, we have one more story to cover, and then we got a, a few more to close out on. Um, I'm going to move us to the one uh, from The Block. This is about Warsaw-based crypto startup Ramp hitting a $300 million valuation in a Series A raise. And, of course, I mentioned also MoonPay uh, had raised as well. So this is closing $30 million in capital, um, and they call themselves a crypto-on-ramp specialist, or a PayPal for crypto. Um, the news comes less than four months after their $9 million seed raise. Um, one source close to the company said the company had generated a lot of traction since it sees raise, um, attracting the attention of larger investors without wanting to raise. Um, Kinjal, what are your thoughts on on ramps for consumers, PayPal for crypto? Um, Do you think that that we will see more of these sorts of businesses that um, specialize in kind of like um, managing that gap?
2: I think we've, you know, we've started to see a few more of these payment gateways or, you know, on ramps where we're basically saying, how can we take traditional Web2 consumers, onboard them into the world of Web3, um, and usually it's a one-way street, right? Oftentimes when you buy your first Ethereum or Bitcoin or whatever it may be, um, usually that capital, I think, tends to stay in that ecosystem. You start to use USDC or some other stablecoin for payments where possible or you're you know, making investments, and I think projects like Ramp or even MoonPay are really focused on that zero to one of how do we just get somebody to make their first purchase um and I think we're you know in the past few years i've certainly seen a dozen companies going after this opportunity i do think that there's going to be more um more to come and and p- potentially more of a a model where stripe plays a bigger role I think last week we saw an announcement that stripe is starting up their their crypto team and looking to build products as well um so i think this is definitely not going away anytime soon
0: interesting. Uh, that sort of naming your team Stripe Crypto, I wonder where they got that idea from. It's it's a good one. They, they'll have t-shirts before you know it. Um, um, I'm, I'm actually going to make this a bit of a quick fire round, because, um, Conjol, I'm, I'm glad you covered that one, but I just saw the next story, which we weren't going to cover, but we're, we're taking a flyer on this. And actually, since we've got Lex and we've got David, I'm really interested in this story from American Banker. Um, DeFi platform mistakenly sends $89 million out to several users, and CEO sort of asks for, or begs for its return. So A bug in a recent update of the Compound Finance Protocol uh, sent users nearly $90 million worth of crypto in an error, leaving the creator CEO begging for users to voluntarily send it back. The trouble started on uh, a couple of Wednesdays ago when users approved an update to Compound's platform that contained a bug. uh, And Compound Labs chief executives, the one and only Rob Leshner on Twitter, said the bug caused too much comp to go to some users. Leshner said the impact was limited to 280000 Comp tokens, which were worth about $89.3 million. After Compound users claimed the Aronas tokens, Leshner on Twitter threatened to reveal their identities to the Internal Revenue Service if they didn't return most of them. Uh, he later apologized for that threat. Open source, decentralized protocols are early and hard, but every hiccup leads to a more anti fragile system, Leshner wrote. David, I'm sure you guys covered this. What are your perspectives?
3: Yeah, yeah. Robert got a lot of flack for that tweet kind of just going against the ethos of crypto, against the ethos of DeFi, right? Like, and it's also kind of just a bad look to threaten to dox people if they don't return the funds. And uh, a lot of people's reactions were like, well, if we need to depend on nation states to make our applications work, then like maybe they, maybe we should rethink about what we're actually doing here. But I actually had a, a different perspective because this wasn't Compound that was saying, hey, we are going to like report you to the IRS and report your income to the IRS. This was Robert Lishner. this was one individual and any individual could take this action. It just so happens that Robert Leshner had the strongest incentives to report other people's receivings of comp tokens to the IRS and hopefully to incentivize them to return the funds. It's also important to note that Robert offered uh, that people, anyone who returned the funds could also keep 10% as a reward, as a white hack reward. Um, But I think this uh, more broadly has a conversation about the relationships between crypto economic networks and nation state governance, right? Where, Where if an individual feels financially harmed by the actions of another individual, that individual is free to take that person to court. And if that individual can discover the identity of another individual, because you know most people don't do a very good job like keeping themselves private while using DeFi, uh, that individual is free to do that. And this has nothing to do with, a, you know, with the centralization or decentralization of the compound protocol. And simply a matter of a, of a fact that Robert Leschner, as an individual with a significant amount of comp exposure uh, feels financially harmed by people that took advantage of this exploit. And if he feels financially harmed, he is free to take another individual to court. And this is completely outside and irrelevant to the fact that this occurrence happened to be on a, and on, on a DeFi platform. Now the, it goes to to the even broader question: Is like, well, like, does a court actually deem intent by the Compound Protocol? Was this actually something that the Compound Protocol intended to happen? Is code law? Uh, and so there's a lot of things to unpack there. Um, but overall, just a nice, uh, an interesting thought experiment uh, as we we're watching some drama play out in DeFi land.
1: Yeah, Lex, I'm I'm really curious your perspective on this. And and it seems like there's somewhat of a separation. There's the Compound Protocol. And then there's the governance token. And so when some people saw this, they were like, oh, the, the it's the protocol. So it wasn't the protocol itself where people had deposited funds. It was the distribution of the tokens. Can you help unpack that for the, the listeners?
4: I won't be able to give you the this bucket to this bucket point of view on it. You know, I think I have a kind of more general reaction, which is I've talked with Robert and he's a super thoughtful person who's built a thing uh, over a long period of time with the best intent. And I think this was just an example of not not reading the room uh, and not, not not every sort of uh, thing that's said in a tongue-in-cheek way is read in a tongue-in-cheek way, especially when you're like literally on top of Mount Olympus with a megaphone yelling at your followers. Um, so, so there's a lesson there about, I think, uh, newfound celebrity. And then separate from that, I mean, it's we're, we're building these, I, I go back to kind of like a sociologic, sociology point of view where we're we're building these macro machines in the shape of, of these decentralized protocols, which in many forms are quite alien to us. You know, we, uh, th- they're hyper-capitalist in their architecture, they're, um, quite communist in their governance and and participation and sort of like worker right type of empowerment and enablement uh, narrative, and they're they're cranking machines that function on their own accord with no taxis backsies for accidents, you know. And and so um, uh, we've we've unleashed this out there. Um, these are the first couple of years in which these machines and these golems are uh, doing their thing. And some, I'm not surprised that people don't really know how to react when things go awry, because these are um, unknown unknowns. You know, and, and kind of the final take on it would be, you put risk capital into Compound, uh, and you get paid for the risk, and the risk is this. And so, if you like uh, good returns, uh, you know, the the risk is going to be sort of these cyber or sort of structural failures that we have to discover through. Um, the grinding of the sausage, so you know I wasn't kind of shocked to see this, but I do think it's uh, it was a very human situation.
0: Kinjal, where do you stand on that point around anti-fragility as well? because um, we talked earlier about institutions coming towards Bitcoin, but arguably that's because there's a, a regulated futures market, and anti-fragility is is great um over time, but hard at the beginning. So unpack that for me and and kind of the risk reward of some of that stuff
2: I mean it's we're we're in this market right now where everyone's risk threshold is getting pushed out. The the anti-fragility of systems is being tested in real time. You know, I think it's funny in in um in the crypto space, sometimes you'll you'll hear somebody call a, a project blue chip in, in six months <laughs> or an NFT community blue chip in six months. Um, and you know, I think when you zoom out on the longer term horizon, you know, these uh, projects and these assets really need to go through many market cycles to to prove out their um, their sort of anti fragility and and just kind of what the the longer term horizon looks like. Um, but because this market has been very very cyclically driven, um, I think it it kind of changes the perception of a of a user of a new investor in some of these projects. Um, and I do think that the risk on mentality shifts your idea of what is risk and how to treat risk in your portfolio um, because it really pushes folks to to kind of um, i think in many cases just increase their risk to a level that you know traditionally would not be ever heard of or seen of or considered prudent and a lot of these systems you know they're about the technology but they're really about social coordination and coordination on chain and so i think with things like compound and you know just this entire situation, it's important to consider that, you know, behind the code, there are humans, the humans are helping to build this and run this. And therefore, we're going to be making and seeing human mistakes and human sort of errors kind of come through.
0: Always a possibility. Kai, to wrap this one out, what are your thoughts?
1: Yeah, I would just say what's so fascinating about crypto is not only are people building new products, but they're building new economic entities and systems for coordination. And so it's there, there's always going to be risk and, and challenges of, of product market fit, you know, for the actual product that you create, but you're also experimenting with how to organize people in the process of building that product at the same time. And you know, that is new. And like Lex mentioned, this is, you know, these are massive experiments, but I think it's it's extremely powerful to see you know, even how early we are, that there are examples, you know, of products that have been built, you know, by these collectives of of individuals over time. And so uh, there's so many layers of experimentation and innovation, but then there are layers of risk. Because even if the product you know works, well, what if the, the economic entity that built the product you know, doesn't work the right way? And so I think it's really important to, to unpack those different layers.
0: We've remade finance at the same time as we've remade the relationship with customers, the same time as we've remade the business model of what a product is, and there's a lot of experimentation and risk in this space. So DYOR, do your own research and don't invest money you can't afford to lose is always, always sage advice. Um, all right, it's time for tweet of the week. Tweet, 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 It's the Tweet of the Week. Tweet of the Week. Uh, Twitter of the week this week comes from Ryan Watkins uh, Ryan says Axie Infinity is now valued at 30 billion US uh, dollars it would put it amongst the top five most valuable video game companies in the world by market cap so just for some context uh, you have Take-Two Interactive at 18.5 billion the Mighty EA at 40 billion uh, Nintendo themselves at 53 billion um, and of course Activision Blizzard um, at 61 billion so that's kind of the neighborhood they're in and ubisoft is down at 7.6 billion so they're in the neighborhood of those things one one might argue that uh you know that their token price may be inflating some of that in the short term but this is real what are your thoughts on this lex is everybody going to be trading axes instead of pokemon is it too late for nintendo to launch an nft uh,
4: it's, it, it's not every, everybody will be a crypto company. Everybody will be an NFT company and people will never stop buying things. You know, um, there is a distinction in that I go to, which is, you know, when you get into an Uber, uh, nobody's expecting to take paper bills and shove it into the phone and be like, oh, look, I paid with cash. Uh, so there, there's definitely going to be some companies that get left behind, you know, that are the equivalent of cash and that just... You know, don't don't plug in to to Uber and don't plug into Web three, but for most companies, they they will pivot and participate in this. Um, and if they're not going to be leaders, they will at least be followers.
0: Yeah, it's almost the question of like, how much growth do you want? It's not like Bank of America or Citibank don't use the internet, but did they capture the growth of it like uh, Facebook or Google did? Uh, Kinjal, what are your thoughts on the on the gaming industry, the metaverse, and and uh, what this stat means?
2: I just think the progress that we've seen in the space is is just absolutely insane. I do think that you know a lot of the upstarts in the Web three community are going to have the advantage in the net you know short to medium term. Um, I think it's going to be challenging for for some of the existing gaming companies to balance their existing user base with the new you know, crypto Web3 user base and making sure that um, they're innovating, but not risking their existing kingdoms. <laughs> um, and so I think uh, I'm, I'm really excited about this new crop of games that we're starting to see emerge. Axie, of course, leading the pack here. Um, and I think that we we're going to see a lot more to come from them.
0: Yeah, incumbent's going to incumbent, and changing the business model is the hardest thing for any organization to do. As somebody who's spent a lot of time with uh, incumbent banks thinking about business models, um, I, I think that's a really good point for the for those businesses to to think about, especially if you've got subscription or their own closed economies. Uh, David, what are your thoughts?
3: Oh, the the world of crypto gaming is absolutely what is coming next and upon reflection it seems to be such a logical uh, next step for for the industry like first we made DeFi, then we made nfts and really what is crypto gaming other than the integration of financial assets and actual economies into games uh, and so, what do you need to do that? Well, you need some currencies, and you need some some objects, some NFTs. Uh, and I think uh, the valuations behind Axie Infinity will definitely break people's brains with if they try to understand it using a historical perspective. But um, they have to remember that remember that it's just not it's not the game that's actually being valued. It's the fact that Axie Infinity is an economy. It's a GDP. Uh, And we are seeing, uh, I think that is what is going to happen next is these in-game economies are going to be the next emerging markets for the next decade or so. And we're already seeing uh, Axie Infinity suck away labor out of, you know, the East Asia, out of the Philippines and put it into Axie. Uh, And so like the third world uh, players are going to be the first, you know, people that make a living inside of the metaverse. And so this is getting ready for that whole ready player one environment that everyone uh, keeps on referencing over and over and over again. Uh, And so it's going to be Gabby from from uh, Yield Guild uh, said this great line where crypto gaming is the financialization of uh, games and while also simultaneously the gamification of work. Uh, and so these two things are going to move closer and closer and closer together. Uh, and it's really going to blur the lines behind what does it mean to play and, and what does it mean to work? Uh, and uh, I think Axie Infinity is leading the charge, not just as a single game, but as a an ecosystem of many, many games that are all built upon the same financial assets. Uh, and that is going to be the model moving
0: forward. Kai, mm-hmm. your perspectives.
1: I would just say, I think the thought experiment in question that really everyone should be asking is, what happens when every new popular video game comes with a crypto wallet that is required to play it? And how many people you know, will look to play a game? And as a function of playing that game, will now have one of the most powerful financial services that you can imagine with all the things that you could do in DeFi, uh, with all the different assets you can access. Uh, With all the different payment capabilities. And so, just from a financial inclusion perspective, you know. I don't think a lot of people think about gaming as a gateway to financial inclusion, and, and I think there's a huge opportunity for that.
0: Indeed, there's there's so much to say on this. And in fact, in the next episode of Blockchain Insider, we'll actually be taking a closer look at all things metaverse, play to earn, and my goodness, have we got some guests lined up for that. Um, we'll be letting you know, you know about it soon on our social media. So be sure to follow at Insider on Twitter. Um, that wraps up this week's news show. Um, thank you so much to our guests. I could have gone on each of the stories for another uh, hour at least. This is an amazing panel. But if people want to find out more about you, where do they do that? Let's start with Kinjal.
2: You can um, find me on Twitter. My handle is underscore Kinjal B. Shah. And uh, DMs are open.
0: All right. Uh, Lex.
4: Ooh, um, Lex Sokolon on Twitter. And make sure to grab uh, Metamask at metamask.io. And if uh, you're interested in... um, uh, a newsletter check out fintechblueprint.com
3: all of the above david you can find me on twitter at trustlessstate. that's three s's in the middle but also you can listen to the podcast uh bankless um you can follow bankless on twitter bankless hq uh where we actually have kai here sh- uh, scheduled for recording in about a month or so yeah
1: definitely check that out guys and last but not least kai on twitter at kai sheffield and visa.com crypto
0: check it out people as for me you can find me at sy taylor on twitter or you can always find us at 11fs.com remember if you uh, liked what you heard please subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss an episode um and if you really love it leave us a review it helps us so much uh, and helps others find the show as always if you want to join the conversation find us on social media just search for 11fs blockchain insider or email podcasts at 11fs.com thank you very much have a great week and we'll be back soon